Welcome to the Law in Sport podcast with me, Sean Cottrell, the founder and CEO of Law in Sport. If you haven't tuned in before, the Law in Sport podcast is here to help you understand the latest legal issues and developments from the world of sport. We also try to give some insight into some of the personalities and characters of key figures working in the sector. Today's podcast does both. Our guest has been described as one of the leading lawyers of his generation. Lord Dyson was Master of the Rolls, President of the Court of Appeal of England and Wales and Head of Civil Justice for four years until he retired in October 2016. He was a Justice of the Supreme Court of the United Kingdom from April 2010 until October 2012. Over his illustrious career, Lord Dyson has been involved in many high-profile sports cases, some resulting in the establishment of the Premier League, others involved the introduction of all-seater football stadiums in the United Kingdom. More recently, he has adjudicated the Peter Beersley racism case for the FA and the Saracens salary cap case for Premiership Rugby. In this interview, Lord Dyson gives a detailed insight into his career and shares his thoughts on the state of sports dispute resolution as well as what it takes to achieve a magnificent career in law. But before we get started, I would just like to highlight that Lord Dyson has just published his memoir, John Dyson, A Judge's Journey, published by Heart Publishing and available online and at all good bookshops. It's been described by Rachel Holmes of The New Statesman as combining humility, humanity and historical context. She goes on to say the early chapters bring insights into the man and the reader's real payoff is the candor with which Lord Dyson discusses the process of judging in modern Britain. I'm about a third of the way through the book at the moment. I'm thoroughly enjoying it. Therefore, I can personally recommend it. And I'd just like to also thank Ben Sandberg from 39 Essex Chambers for arranging this interview. I know Lord Dyson has a busy schedule and thank you so much for doing that. It's really appreciated. Other than that, wherever you are in the world, whatever time of day it is, if you're on a commute on the way into work, so lunchtime, maybe you're listening when you're working out at the gym, whenever you're listening to this, thank you so much for tuning in. If you do enjoy it, please let people know. Please do share it on all the social platforms, but also, you know, email it to people. Give us a, a rating on iTunes or any other platform. It really does make a difference. And thanks so much for tuning in. Lord Dyson, thank you so much for taking the time out to, to speak with me today. It's a real honour um, and privilege to be here and, and to, to, to speak with someone like yourself. Um, as I said, I was reading your biography. It's an incredible background that you've, you've got in your family history. It's just fascinating to read. Before we get into the sports law element, can you just give people a brief insight into really what motivated you to get into law in the first place? Well, I, I described this a bit in my, my, my memoir, A Judge's Journey. Uh, it would be nice to be able to say that I had a burning passion to be a lawyer from an early age, but uh, I'm afraid that would uh, not be the uh, correct statement. Uh, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Um, I went up to Oxford uh, on a scholarship to read law, uh, but I was talked out of reading law by the, the warden, the head of the college, who said, if you, if you want to be a lawyer, then why read law? <laughs> it seemed an odd question to ask, but he was quite a powerful presence, and I was a rather shy, naive young person. And so he persuaded me to read classics, which is what I did, uh, and and I, that was a four-year course, 
um, my father had always had this slightly romantic view about the law and in particular the bar and I knew he wanted me to be a barrister uh, and so when towards the end of my um, time at Oxford I, I had really to seriously to think about what I was going to do uh, I thought about possibly having a, a, an academic career because I really enjoyed that um, I thought about being a civil servant but in the end I uh, really by a process of elimination uh, alighted upon the law because I thought it would be intellectually interesting but also be relevant dealing with real people and real problems of the here and now. And uh, quite why I chose the bar rather than solicitor, I, I'm not even now quite sure, but I, that's what I did. And what was your first involvement with sports cases and how did that come about? Because we were talking just before um, we started recording and uh, would it be correct in saying that you didn't have what you would consider to be a sports practice at the time and yet you acted on some some of the most significant cases? I did not have a sports practice. I started out doing general knockabout work in the county courts and the magistrates' courts. I then gradually started doing a, lo a lot of heavy construction and engineering disputes. That wasn't really by choice. Uh, it was because the head of the chambers had written a book on that subject and work started to come in. Uh, I took silk, became a QC, uh, and continued to do that sort of work. But I, I was getting a bit frustrated in just doing that kind of work. Uh, eventually, I was persuaded um, by Edwin Glasgow, who was a, a member of what was then called uh, Two Garden Court Chambers, they were more general common law chambers. I was really persuaded by him. He was a very persuasive man uh, to go to those chambers and become head of those chambers. It was a really quite a brave, risky move. Um, but I, I knew that if I stayed put, I, I would just carry on doing more and more of these heavy uh, construction cases. Uh, so I moved chambers. Uh, I started to, I, I still did some construction work, but I started to do more general work. Uh, and um, I don't know how it came about that I was instructed uh, on behalf of the FA to appear at the Hillsborough Inquiry in 1989. The solicitors uh, used to instruct me on other, on other cases and they, they decided to give me a go. And so I, I appeared um, in Sheffield at the inquiry before uh, Lord Justice, as it then was, Lord Justice Taylor, Peter Taylor. And the, 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 the FA didn't have a great deal to contribute to the first part of that hearing, which was all concerned to find out what actually happened at Hillsborough. Um, but the second part of the, uh, of the inquiry, which did not take place in public and, and was all done on paper, uh, was in many ways more important, although of course the, uh, the events of April 1989 were tragic and appalling and have given rise to continuing, and even now, uh, uh, litigation of one sort and, and another. Um, but I was asked by the FA to, to chair a small ad hoc committee which was set up uh, to put forward proposals for the future of football because part of the terms of reference of Peter Taylor's inquiry 
was not only to find out what happened, but also to make recommendations to ensure that this sort of tragedy didn't happen again. And and this was used uh, as a, a vehicle for a, a quite a wide-ranging inquiry about the future of football generally. And so this ad hoc, ad hoc committee that I chaired uh, consisted of uh, people from the, the big big hitter clubs from the the then first division uh, of the football league uh, to um, one representative of an amateur club. So it was, we had a broad range, and it was my job to try to come up with proposals which they all signed up to to put to Peter Taylor in the hope that we could persuade him to adopt those proposals. And the, the, the issues that we had to grapple with included, for example, having whether there should be all-seater stadiums. And I remember vividly, even after all this time, uh, the discussion, the, the, um, there was an, an awful lot of feeling um, um, expressed by the members of this committee that the fans would simply not wear all-seater stadia. They, they said, oh, they, they, they throw the seats onto the pitch, and it's just so contrary to the, the whole history, ethos, and culture of football. They just wouldn't work. And I, I remember saying to them, if that's the line you take, you will find that, that the all-seater stadia will be forced, forced upon you. And so, really, wouldn't it be better to, to p come forward with some sort of nuanced, graduated proposal and I persuaded them of that. So we did put forward proposals which just d differentiated between the, the rich big clubs and the, and the, am the small amateur clubs. Um, and those proposals were accepted by Peter Taylor in full. Uh, and then the other big issue that I... There were quite a lot of issues, but, but it was a very big and important change. Uh, the, the other... I can't remember too many of the details, but the other big point I remember was that um, 1989 was uh, I, shortly after the uh, Heisel Stadium disaster. And uh, there was a, quite a lot of, um, there was quite a lot of violence, uh, you know, on uh, at football grounds. And Margaret Thatcher was very keen on introducing identity cards, um, as, sh as she thought, to, to try to, um, enable the clubs to control better who came on, came to watch the games in, uh, with a view to clamping down on the violence. That was her thinking. And the uh, FA and, and uh, everybody I spoke to was dead against that. And so we, we the five, my five committee, and I, and I wrote up the our proposals, and we argued the case f against all, um, these identity cards. And we persuaded Peter Taylor not to go down that route. So the two big things that I remember from that were one was the All-Seater Stadia proposal and the other was the uh, identity cards proposal which we managed to quash. And Peter Taylor again, uh, accepted our proposals on that as well. So that, that, was, that was the first case. And um, because I did, I did a good job for the FA, at least they thought I did a good job, um, they instructed me a couple of years later in one of the most interesting cases I did at the bar, which was when the FA wanted to set up the Premier League. Um, the Football League was very opposed indeed to this. And there was um, 
a legal challenge by the Football League uh, to the setting up of the Premier League, and it, it was a, a, a two-pronged challenge. One was a, a judicial review challenge, um, and the other was they were saying you can't do it because it's contrary to the, your um, your your um, uh, regulations, and I can't remember the details of it. But anyway, there was a double. There was a two-pronged challenge. And it, it came before Mr. Justice Rose, Christopher Rose, who I, I know quite well. I see him quite often even now, and he, he, it was one of his best cases. And he, he said he knew nothing about football. Um, anyway, I argued this case for the FA successfully. Um, and, and therefore, in a way, I feel that I played a part in the setting up of the Premier League. Uh, because if we'd lost that case, there wouldn't have been a Premier League. And um, I, I do remember also that the background to that challenge, uh, and the back, sorry, the background to the FA's wish to set up the Premier League, was that the the Football League was simply not exploiting the commercial potential of football. I think the, it was beginning to be realised that this was the, the the money potentially was massive here. And they were simply not exploiting it, so that was that was part of the the trigger for the desire to set up the Premier League. And what was the what would you from that case, if you can remember back then? What was the most interesting thing about it? What was the you know, given that you didn't have this mainstay sports practice, but now you look back and that is like a seminal moment in football. What was the things that really that, that gripped you and intrigued you about that case so much? Well, I just found I. Being a lawyer, of course, and, and really liking the law, I, I found um, the legal issues were fascinating. Uh, but the subject matter, I mean, I, I was conscious at the time that this was a, you know, a, a very important case. Um, I had dealings with Graham Kelly, who was the, I think, the secretary of the uh, FA at the time. I don't know if he's still alive. Um, he, he was quite an astute man he used to come to the the conferences in my chambers and he 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 rarely said very much but i i just knew that he was he had a quite a sharp head on his shoulders um but it was it was really i was just conscious that that this was big and and the issues the legal issues raised were were fascinating uh the other side the barristers on the other side there was a the, the QC on the other side was a, a, man, a man called David Oliver, but his junior was David Panic, who the Lord Lord Panic, who of course has since then become extremely famous and successful. Uh, and so there were a lot of things, aspects of the case which I remember. But I did not have a mainstream sports practice. I'm not sure that people did in those days. I, I think that it the law has has kind of has become so much more involved in in sport in sport in the last 30 years than it was then yeah, and, and and partly because of that case also the money involved in sport and has money, and, and therefore the significance of it and the impact well, is that's the other thing i remember about the case because in order to kind of read into the background of it i i read various reports which had been uh, sorry various reports which had been commissioned by the fa um, before they made the decision to to go for it, and uh, they'd got various people to uh, to produce forecasts of the kind of income that might be generated from television rights and the rest of it, 
and they were substantial sums, but they were they were nothing like the sums of money that are now generated. I mean, it, it was just not in anybody's contemplation that what has happened was going to happen. I, I then went on the bench, of course, and I was on the bench for 23 years at, at, you know, at all the different levels. Um, and as far as I can rem- remember, I only did one sports case as a judge. Uh, I, I had a few sort of accident cases involving accidents in the school playground and that sort of thing, but that that doesn't really. What was count. the case? Do you remember? I can't remember the name of the case. <laughs> no, but it was it was. Um, no, I had more than one case about you know whether a child who was um, injured in the sports in the in the playground. Uh, could bring a claim against the school. Quite an interesting area of the law. Um, and very relevant now, given concussion, rugby, yes, duty care. Yes, absolutely. But the the one case I do remember, which I heard, I, I think, uh, when I was master of the roles, was a case involving uh, Leeds United, my, my uh, the club that I used to support when I was a kid. Um, in fact, I was wondering whether I ought to have disclosed the fact that I was a support, but I, I didn't um, because I, I, I didn't regard myself any longer as having any involvement. Well, I never had an involvement with the club, um, and I'm, I'm not. I can't really claim to be a supporter anymore. But the case was a very interesting case uh, um, about whether uh, the club had to pay for the cost of policing. Uh, it's a it's a reported case. The the club accepted that um, it had to pay for the cost of policing within the ground uh, and within the land owned by the club. Uh, but the question was whether, uh, when on a Saturday, for example, the, a lot of additional police have to go to the the station uh, and man the streets between the station and the ground, uh, whether the club had to pay for that that policing. Or whether that fell to be paid for by the local ratepayers, and we held that that fell on the shoulders of the ratepayers, and it didn't it didn't fall to the club to be paid. And my my initial reaction to that case, when I first thought about it, was, well, it it seems tough that the you know the the local ratepayers uh, should have to pay for all this because it's this is policing necessary only because the the club is having a match at its ground. Uh, the club makes money out of it, so why should the club not pay for it? Um, but the more I thought about it, the more I thought that was wrong. Because I, uh, you, you know, if you extend that argument, you would have to say that um, every time there's a protest march, for instance, um, uh, and there's a, a need for additional policing, then the people organising the protest march would have to pay for that, and that didn't seem r- right. Uh, and you know, if there's a royal wedding, you, know, you don't expect the royal family to pay for the cost of the additional police that have to man the streets of London. Uh, and it just seemed to be me. The more I thought about it, that the 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 clearer it became that really, that as part of a civilized society, you do need policing to police public events, and and football, although it's played on a private ground it is a public event access accessed by the public but that was a very interesting case it's really interesting and again it's an issue that's still ongoing and uh, not only just here but across european football um at the moment you know in greece italy spain wherever you go um i know there's there's continual ongoing responsibility or 
discussions around who is responsible, particularly for say Champions League matches, Europa League matches, and where the where the liability ends, and you know what they should be doing. Um, the as you were talking, I was wondering now that you obviously you were one of the most you're one of the most uh, accomplished uh, judicial minds in the country, and you have this interest in sport and back then it was it seems that it was much of an academic interest in terms of the arguments that are being put forward and intellectual um challenge that you presented um but for you now as an arbitrator and uh, as a mediator what's the how does it compare to being you know to, 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 to the, the cases you were hearing as a judge what the uh, and this is a very badly asked question it's the one question it's the one question i wanted to ask and this is again why um i couldn't be a judge the question that I'm trying to ask is, I guess, simply is, what interests you about legal issues in sport, and particularly as an arbitrator and mediator? What is it as a, as a, as, as um, I guess the first question would be, what does sport mean to you? And why, is it, why does it interest you? And then secondly, what is it about those actual cases and where do you see it at the moment in terms of um, those functions? How robust do you think they are? Do you think they could be improved? I'm just curious to, 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 to I'd love to get a snapshot into the cases you're involved in and what you're thinking in the background, let's say the meta analysis that's taking place as you're involved in some of these cases. Well, I'm not only doing sports work. I, I'm doing a range of things, uh, international arbitration. I, I've just finished a very big uh, uh, auditor's disciplinary case involving a, a huge um, audit and, and a company which went which went spectacularly bust. So, I mean, basically, I, I'm interested in, uh, I, I'm interested in dispute resolution. I'm currently only interested in doing cases which are interesting. <laughs> now they can be interesting because they're legally interesting or they can be interesting because they're they're factually in factually interesting. And so I, I don't want to give you the impression that I'm only interested in doing deciding legal issues. Uh, I'm I'm very interested in one of the one of the nice things about about this phase of my life, my career, is that I've gone back to hearing witnesses and having to make findings of fact. And I've, I'd forgotten how interesting that really is, seeing people giving evidence and having to make findings. Uh, so I don't want to give the impression that, that I'm only doing sport. It's, it's, that's not the case. Yeah, but so that was a bad... Again, the first question was a bad one, and the second <laughs> question was, it, was it equally as bad. It no, seems. I don't think it was. But, uh, um, but I, I, I've always been interested in sport, uh, particularly... Um, uh, cricket has been my great passion, really, all, all my life, and I think that comes through in my memoir. Um, and soccer, I've been interested in because uh, I think it's when it's played well. I think it's just such a fabulous game to watch. Uh, I've never really been that interested in rugby, even though I, you know, I have this very interesting recent Saracens case. Um, tennis is another one. I, I'm I really really enjoy. I hate boxing. <laughs> I, I'm a boxer. I used to be a boxer. <laughs> I don't like. I basically don't like violence. That's really what it comes to. So, um, and and I'm discovering that that sports cases do throw up 
fascinating questions of fact and law. And it, it seems to me that this is a, a massively developing area of the law. Pe people are referring more and more, it's giving rise to more and more disputes. Um, and I actually really enjoy, uh, I enjoy being a barrister and, 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 and fighting cases, and that was very exciting. But I, I really enjoy um, deciding disputes and trying to decide them well, trying to decide them clearly and fairly so that everybody feels they've had a fair hearing. And uh, I don't know if you wanted to, I was going to stay clear of it because I'm not sure if you wanted to t talk about your experience with the Saracen case, but I would like to, because I'm trying to, I would love to get your perspective on some broader issues of in sports law and what your perspectives are on sort of education of arbitrators, what's expected of panels and independents. But maybe before we come on to that, mm. obviously you said you've been involved in the biggest case in rugby. Um, yeah. the Saracens case at the moment which um, uh, 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 you heard the appeal um, no, it, it wasn't an appeal actually this was the first instance there would sorry they, they threatened to appeal that's right my decision but but they decided not to uh, and and I did do um, last year although they, it settled on the very first day but the um, Queen's Park Rangers salary cap Case. I didn't know that. I didn't know you were involved in that. Well, you probably wouldn't have done because because it settled on the first day. I, to my dismay, because it was a fascinating case. I had some discussions with people involved in it, and they wouldn't tell me the exactly what was going on. But again, they said there was some really amazing research that was done, and some arguments put forward. And I believe there was similar was done in the Saracens case. Yes, there, there and we're never and we're never going to. Unfortunately, it doesn't seem like similar. Well, I'd like to talk about that actually. About, well, let's about do. The, the Sar well, the Saracens case um, was was a, a wonderfully interesting case, both legally and factually. Uh, there were legal issues. There was a, a, a competition law challenge, just as there was in the Queens Park Rangers case, and that challenge in the Queens Park Rangers case had failed uh, at the first instance. I came in at the appeal stage on that one. Uh, in the Saracens one, I came in at the first instance stage. Uh, I don't know quite why they, what makes them decide whether to get somebody like me to deal with a really difficult case like this as first instance, or, or rather than appeal. But anyway, that that's their that's their I, call. I, I think, having spoken to a few people, it's because once you've made your decision, I think, given your stature that and and experience and expertise, I think the the chance of appeal is is at least the perception of a chance of appeal is is, is diminished because they would think that your decision is more legally robust. So that's the yeah. Well, that's nice to nice to think that that may be so. But anyway, whatever it is, the interesting thing is I that there are. I, I did the case in July, the Peter Beardsley case, you know, the yes. racist remarks case, which was also a very different kind of case, but also a fascinating case. And I, I, I enjoyed many aspects of that case, not least the fact that my two co-arbitrators were both former Premier League players. Am I correct in thinking one of them was Gareth Farrelly? Yes, yes. He's now become a solicitor. And is now a castle arbitrator and as well. And indeed he which is. Which is fantastic. And the, and the other was a man called Tony Agana. Um, and they were both great colleagues. Uh, I really enjoyed working with them because uh, I'd never worked with footballers before. So I'm curious to know what you found so enjoyable. First of all, they were very nice men. Um, secondly, they, they, they were very conscientious. They worked really hard at the case. Uh, and 
we we'd had you know serious discussions. There was no question of um, them just saying, "Oh, well, because you say this, we'll go along with that." And in fact, when it came to the, uh, the imposing the 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 penalty, the sanction, um, uh, I, I I I don't want to give much away here, but my because I'm a bit of a softy when it comes to the sentencing and that sort of thing. And I um, initially was in favor of, of a rather more lenient sentence, uh, penalty. They both of them thought that I was being too soft. And I, th I didn't argue with them because it seemed to me, particularly on a thing like that, you know, not, not the law, not making findings of fact, but just how serious a view do you take of this behavior? Uh, it just seemed to me that if they both of them agree, as they did, they both agreed on on the figure that we finally alighted upon, then I I just thought that was the right thing to do. So I agreed with them. So they they actually on that in particular, they their contribution was invaluable. But it was much more than that. I mean, they they when I I did the I I wrote the thing, but they they both read it very carefully. So. It was just great, and to work with people from a completely different background from my own, of itself was was, was enjoyable and fascinating. And, and coming back to the Saracens case, then, what was the um, when you were making your deliberations on that case? Can you talk about? Uh, obviously, there's been a public statement that has gone out. Um, as I'm saying that question, I'm realizing you can't. I'm giving you a question you maybe you can't answer. I guess um, on the stuff that you can talk about, what was the I guess the most interesting elements of that case that you you know that obviously in the public domain? Well, it was all interesting actually. I mean, it was it was there was a competition law challenge to the whole thing, um, and then there was the really quite tricky question of whether or not all these various um, transactions and arrangements that the club had made with with and for the benefit of the players, uh, whether they um, am amounted to salary within the very, very broad definition of salary that is in the regulations. Um, and so I, it's, it's really frustrating that I can't talk to you uh, more about this because the regulations say that the hearing is is can, is confidential. Um, I accept that that is not surprising. Although the um, the one I've just done uh, the the auditors thing that was in, held in public. I mean, I don't actually really understand why why the public is kept out of all this because there's a real public interest in this. It's interesting you say that because this wouldn't be one of my frustrations when I first started law and sport that I couldn't get access. So initially the barrier was you couldn't get access uh, to statutes, you couldn't get access to the regulations in full and still still the case in some of the Premier League, sorry, Premiership Rugby regulations are not fully um, published on their website well maybe they've changed in the I think I think the, the, certainly the regulations I was dealing with I think are on the website the salary cap ones salary are, cap. yeah absolutely yeah. but the other ones are not but what, so I, what I don't understand is is why uh, they wouldn't publish the the, the decision but, but the regulations say it's the, you can't the FA's regulations are different and, and my decision the Peter Beersley decision was published in full uh, but all that the um, regulations, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I think that 
if the PRL and Saracens had agreed to the publication of the decision, then presumably it could have been published. Um, but I, uh, I don't think either of them was willing to agree to it. Um, but but in a way, uh, as bad as, as at least as bad as that is the fact that the the regulations say that the the PRL can um, publish a summary of the decision. And so, um, they have they have done that. But the summary is is so brief um, that it, it's almost. I mean, it, it does say the the final, you know, the bottom line, the decision. But what it doesn't say, um, which I think is so bad, <laughs> they they didn't say um, why we imposed the penalty we imposed. And I, I can't, uh, I mean, I, I can't probably say what those reasons are. But there were two particular factors, which, in our view, made it a particularly serious uh, case. Um, and I don't understand why the summary could not have just said that. In fact, I drafted a, a summary f for their consideration, which included those two factors. And and but they they didn't include them so that the the public has no idea why we impose the penalty we imposed i'd love to get your take on this then so so one of the elements of lawyers working in sport and sports arbitration has been that there is a vast number of cases that are not across various sports that are not in the public domain and therefore um, some lawyers who have been more successful, essentially, uh, could, it could be argued that are not necessarily ses ex uh, successful purely on their legal expertise, but actually just their ability to um, access cases. For example, when again with law and sport, we can get access to a lot of unpublished decisions because we know the lawyers, and sometimes they will send them through, sometimes they won't. And there's very informal networks globally and some formal networks globally in which they share that information around in private networks. What is your view on that, given that you, a lot of these cases, as you were saying, um, and I know this is a, I believe it's a widely discussed issue in arbitration generally. Um, what's your view on that, given the, the, the weight of public interest in sport and the significance that has on either participants individually teams uh, other investors etc well I, I mean i'm a believer in open justice uh, i always have been a believer in open justice i think there is a distinction between private commercial arbitration and this the i know i know they're both called arbitration but they're very different private arbitration um, between commercial bodies, if if they if they want what happens in an arbitration to be kept private, then um, I, I think they're entitled to have that wish respected. Um, there are people who regret that, but I mean, I I I just think that must be right. I mean, if that's what they've bargained for, then um, that that's that that should be respected. This is quite different. The, the, here we're not talking about disputes between arm's length commercial bodies. We're talking about um, uh, what what uh, disciplinary matters. Um, it's it's got nothing to do with uh, contracts between parties who have said, if we have a dispute, we would like to have it just determined in private. And so 
um, I, I can't actually see a, a justification for the, 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 the kind of cloak of privacy that's imposed in these cases. I, I, I fully understand that there may be circumstances in which you, you will want to redact part of the decision. In fact, we had that in, in the Peter Beardsley case because some of these players were, were uh, youngsters. And um, they they didn't uh, and you know they'd been quite quite brave in um, speaking out against Peter Beardsley, who was a as they as a, we were told many times was a kind of living legend up in, in Newcastle. So you know uh, and for these young boys, um, it was a big deal to to step forward and give this evidence. Um, Beardsley contested it all, so it was all very difficult for them so i can well understand why um that should you know their identity uh should not be put into the public domain that's fine uh but uh until so we did that we we redacted the names and we redacted anything that could lead to the identification of those players and and that worked well um but i can't see i i just don't really understand why in take the saracens case um, I can't understand why that's not been put in the public domain. I mean, there's a real public interest in this. These, you know, this is a, a very famous club. These um, very successful businessmen who back the club have done these things, um, and uh, I, I, I can't see why the public shouldn't should not be entitled to know why we reached the decision we reached. All they know is the decision we reached. Um, I, so I find it frustrating because again you're left to fill in the blanks and often but you can't I mean it's a very complex it was a very complex case a hundred page decision but it doesn't stop unfortunately it doesn't stop the legal community from uh, speculating and, and then often it can be wrong and the problem is then you come to this point is who's correcting and there are and, and people do leak as yeah, well absolutely you know the, the hearing that we held in um, whenever it was September I think um, was meant to be private and com confidential, but things leaked out. I mean, you know, and, and people got very cross about the fact that there was some leaking going going on. Uh, but there were a no quite a number of people in the room, and you know, for some people, it's irresistible to to talk. It's a shame though, because it, again, it doesn't encourage. Uh, yeah, I could say that type of behaviour could then discourage them to. Um, Move to more open access when it comes to the decisions because they it's a, it's a feeling of uh, it's a feeling of mistrust in the sort of um, maybe this is you've seen this in other sectors where you're the regulator and the yeah. regulated and and rather than have this um, sort of mutual respect is actually you know uh, we see this in anti doping you have a for athletes or against athletes it's not there's no we're for a better sport I, I mean I just as I say my starting point is open justice because this is something which is which is in, in the it's it's in the public domain. Rugby, soccer is played in the public domain. Millions of people are interested in it, and follow it. Uh, it, it could hardly be more different from a, a, a private arbitration dispute between two people who've got a contract which has gone wrong, um, where the public really has no interest. Uh, it, there's no public interest in it. Though there may be a public interest in a point of law being decided in that case, but uh, the dispute. Um, 
is a, basically it's a private dispute. I mean, even that's a bit more complicated because you can have contracts between uh, parties, uh, one a, 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 lo a public body, you know, the government or local authority, and and a, a private contractor. And if that contract goes wrong, and if the public body has made a mess of it, then there too, I think the public has a right to know. But the fact is that parties have their bargained for a private arbitration. As I said before, this is totally different. This is the sports sports uh, being sport being regulated by um, a, a body, and um, where which provides that when things go wrong, um, then there can be. Uh, disciplinary proceedings, and uh, and if there's a dispute, uh, it can be referred to what is called an arbitration. But it's as I say, it's a it's an arbitration in which I think the public has a a, a, a genuine right to know to know that it's happening, what the outcome is, and and the reasons for that outcome. And so, so I love this. So the starting point should be open, and then essentially there's other tools and means such as redaction yes. that that could address some of the other issues around maybe privacy, confidentiality, about you know affected parties. Yes, absolutely, that's excellent. I'm really pleased to hear that. It's great to hear your perspective coming into it from not having that 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 you know, quote unquote sports law background or strong sporting background. Yes, I I think. Um, I, I'm sure that the, in the case of PRL, they, they probably disagree strongly with what I've just said. I'd love to know why. Um, I'd love to host that debate <laughs> <laughs> if we could ever get it going. Um, unfortunately, there's always more background to all of this, and there's, yes. there's various reasons. But I often think that from a um, the FA, for example, have moved to a much more open, FIFA yes. are moving much more open. Yes. I think that's actually been more beneficial for them because, again, people yes. can clearly see what the, the reasons are and therefore it makes more sense. Whereas yeah. if they just get the, the end decision, the speculation is just fueled. And it, and it exactly, precisely. And, and that's what's hap happened here because there's, there's an enormous amount of interest in this Saracens case. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's still it's still being mentioned even now, weeks after the event. Uh, and And... People really have a right to know, I think. And also for the other parties involved, you think it creates some legal uncertainty for them because, and I think this is, you know, it seems to, what's your perspective in this regard in relation to, to settlement agreements in, in sports regulation? Because say, for example, in, in football, uh, they have uh, sustainability, it used to be called financial fair play, in, yeah. in Europe, in UEFA is financial fair play, yes. and then it's the um, sustainability and development rules or something along those lines. I've forgotten what it is off the top of my head. But the anyway, the financial regulation rules mm. about how much uh, in the Football League and the Premier League they're allowed to spend. Mm. And as part of those mechanisms, mm. they're generally like settlement agreements. What's your view in terms of settlement agreements in such uh, situations? Because as you were saying, it's not that the arms length bodies that have uh, that essentially bargained for that provision. Well, I think settlement agreements are to be encouraged. I think you 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 know you want to try and um, avoid having uh, these expensive contested battles if you possibly can. So I, I'm I'd be all in favour of settlements, but I think I, I thought you were about to to make the point which, with with which I would agree that if um, decisions such as our Saracens decision were made public, then all the other um, uh, uh, rugby clubs would know what we had decided in this case, and it would help them absolutely to know what 
what can be done and what can't be done. Now, it, it, it is true, it's fair to say, that in the, um, uh, the, the rugby union uh, salary cap uh, regulations set up, they have a salary cap manager, and he has quite an important function to perform. And if it works properly, and it, it didn't work properly here because Saracens were not doing the thing as they should have done, but if it's worked properly, then if a club has uh, wants to, it has any doubt about whether or not something that it wants to do would would um, fall foul of the salary cap regulations, whether whether what whether it would amount to salary, then they are re- supposed to notify the salary cap manager uh, and to consult consult the salary cap manager, um, and in, in a um, in a difficult borderline case to see what the salary cap manager's view would be. Uh, that's how it's meant to work. So, so the salary cap manager will, of course, be aware of, of our decision. But that's, I don't think that's good enough. I think the, the clubs should also be aware so that everybody would then be able to know. Uh, it would just be a, a little, another piece in the jigsaw to enable them to, uh, to, reg, to regulate their affairs, knowing what, what is permissible and what isn't. And, and also the, 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 the thing that, on top of this, a wider global impact is that, uh, particularly in, in, in these cases, is, is that it could be used as um, pervasive for other uh, approaches towards these type of issues in other jurisdictions, other sports, and I think this sport, is, yes. and this is one of the things that, that that I find surprising in sports, or initially found surprising, yeah. was the lack of willingness to openly share best yes. practice yeah. in this regard. And it still seems to me that the fear drives the um, the decision making process in this in this area. I don't understand it. I think it. Uh, to be fair, I have not discussed this with any people in who in in high places in. In sports, so they they may well have some totally convincing answer. So I I, I I think what I'm saying is, of course, subject to hearing any argument that might persuade me to a different view. But at the moment, I can't see uh, what the answer to it is, uh, and it would be nice to know what the answer to it is. I mean, why is this all? kept under wraps so that nobody people don't they don't know about the decisions they don't know why the authorities are unwilling to disclose the decisions um it's all very un, unhealthy i mean i can't believe this i can't believe that this will subsist for very much longer we've started to see, see a shift i'm glad to say so say for example fifa have done a complete u-turn with a mm. change of legal team and they came up we did a webinar with them in which they discussed their disciplinary yeah. co-changes and took all questions no vetting that's got all questions yeah. which would seem totally the sensible approach for yes. a regulator to yes. take Quite. and it's but it seems that there's still a, um, some reluctance to take that approach and I'm not sure I'm, I'm not also sure of, of, of the actual reason because it would seem to me that if they can get ahead of it and have clear regulations that everyone understands and everyone really participates um, and everyone's clear on what behaviour should be expected of them it's going to be better for everyone um, I'm conscious of time I, w- I wish I wish <laughs> I wish we could continue for half a day because I've got so many questions. Unfortunately, we can't. Um, what is your view on the use of expert witnesses? Say, if I could pose a, a, a question to you. So, say for example, in the case of anti-doping, one of the challenges is that, given the regulatory framework and the the number of laboratories that are uh, are required with the right level of expertise and knowledge to 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 examine the um, the blood samples or urine samples 
Nathalie Biological Passports. It creates a limitation on the number of experts then that are independent experts that are available to testifying in a disciplinary hearing or an arbitration later on. Uh, do you have any just yeah um, and I said I haven't prepped you for this do you have any um, views on this where you've got essentially a sector where there's not actually that many experts a lot of the experts are already being used by one of the parties is there a way to resolve that effectively in a in a um, in an arbitration setting well uh, this is not something I've it's not really my area of of expertise Uh, so I don't think I can really offer you anything very helpful on this, I'm afraid. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, if... Uh, I, I think this is probably a, a problem, not, not just in sport, but in, in any highly specialist area where there may be only a relatively small number of experts available. Um, I, don't, I was just curious to, to know if you, in those other areas... Um, if you had heard or had seen anything that had been effective or it's just a, a challenge that I guess has to be met with? I haven't, I'm afraid. Right, okay. I think it's just something that's got to be grappled with. I mean, so long as you can find two reasonably good experts. It's a challenge, because it's interesting because it's something that we're looking at because it's a, it's a real challenge when you have uh, regulators who essentially have generally got more money, resources, going out against the parties, yes. um, you can see that there could be potential for an imbalance. Um, say, for example, you're an Olympic athlete or you're a football player even. Obviously, you've got more resources if you're a top-level football player. Um, and then a case gets brought against you and then you've essentially got to disprove the findings. But you need to find someone who can analyse the findings, give you interpretation of those findings and carry enough uh, weight to be taken uh, as convincing for the arbitrators. I find it actually a bit depressing that um, that so many of these um, highly technical cases, uh, you will find um, experts um, willing to say, uh, speak on one side and then speak on the other side. One would have thought uh, that, sorry, one would have thought that um, in, in most, or at any rate, many areas of um, technical issues and it's, it's across the board it's in you know all sorts of different areas of the law you'd have thought that, uh, that there shouldn't be too much disagreement between experts and I, I know that when Lord Wolf produced his reforms 20 years ago and and the experts had to be reminded that uh, they owed a duty to the court and in this case it would be a duty to the arbitration panel um, and they weren't just hired guns um, one hoped that that because I remember when I was at the bar that there were there were experts who were notorious. Uh, they were always re- representing one body or group, and they always they always spoke in on that uh, uh, in favour of the case that was being advanced by that group. And frankly, you you just did not believe for a minute that they were being independent experts. And my my fear is that that there's still quite a lot of that about. I asked this question at our annual conference to win, and I'd like to go into this, uh, uh, which is, our judiciary have a particular uh, training to enhance their judicial skills. So there's a process that's gone through that, that, that I think is good and particularly proud of. I know that Sir Wynne thought that 
it was he was something he was very proud of and asked him a question and said, uh, would you prefer uh, essentially someone who's got judicial skills uh, has been trained through uh, through the through the system that we've got or that they've got sports knowledge in terms of sports arbitration and he's uh, his response was was a very good one and he said and he said um well in an ideal world you'd have both um but if it was one or the other i would probably go with the judicial skills as that's what what the role is so building on from that what do, uh, do you, one do you agree and then secondly what uh, would you say are the minimum requirements that you would like to see given the the significance of these arbitral bodies now globally what would the, what would be the sort of characteristics of uh, of an arbitrator that you would like to see and how much do you think well, I'll leave it there and then okay um i i largely agree with what win williams said to you um um because essentially the skills you require are resolving disputes skills and and if it's a question of uh, obviously if if it's a question of, if there's a question of law then the, the, there's no there's no um room for disagreement uh if it's a question of fact again i think judges have just got so much more experience of assessing witnesses uh, and so on and so on. The only uh, qualification I would uh, make is that uh, there may be uh, there may be some areas, and I don't even know whether sports law is one such area or not, but there are certain areas, I think, where the issue is essentially one of, um, of a technical nature. Um, and in, I, I think there are cases where um, it makes a lot of sense, frankly, for the, the the decision maker to have that technical skill. They also need they need also to be fair and independent and and all that kind of thing. But to have the the technical skill, I think, uh, would be a benefit. I'll give you one example of. Um, and it's an extreme example, going back to my judicial career, not sport at all. This was about dentistry. And uh, the, um, the defendant was a dentist who was, a, who was an appalling dentist. He had done a lot of unnecessary work on people's teeth, on the, the about 80 or 90 patients. He was, he was a bad man. Um, and he'd done, he'd, you know, he'd done fillings which were not necessary and so on and so on. But he'd also done them very badly. And w- I heard a few, I think about five specimen cases. Um, and uh, I, I had to decide whether he had been negligent in the way he'd done these, this work. And the primary evidence um, relied upon by the claimants uh, required looking at x-rays because they had the x-rays of the teeth before the treatment and then after the treatment and um, each side called um, an academic dentist a professor I think from university I mean high, highly qualified people and I was shown these two uh, these x-rays and one professor said well if you look if you look at this and this and this you'll see that X Y and Z and the other one said no no, you've got that wrong because, and then he interpreted these x-rays in a different way. Now, it was ridiculous for me to 
to have to choose between these two because there was nothing obviously incompetent about them all. There were about either of them. There was nothing I could ha ha sort of get hold of to point to one being more likely to be right than the other. And so I just had to look at these images, and I don't know if you've looked at X-rays. I find X-rays very difficult to look at, and and so I'm afraid I decided that on the uh, on the burden of proof. I mean, I just said, well, I'm afraid it is a bit of a cop out because uh, I I don't like deciding cases on burden of proof and just saying, well, you haven't discharged the burden of proof. I mention all that because it's um, a very extreme example of where. Um, certainly for the purpose of deciding that question, I was completely hopeless. And they would have been far better off having another specialist who would have been much more likely to be able to resolve that dispute than I could. And so uh, I, I only give that as an illustration because it just pops into my mind. But I think it um, illustrates the fact that I, I would largely agree with what Wynne said, but I, I think there, there does need to be that slight qualification. Do you have any view on arbitral jurisprudence? So one of the features of arbitration being that it's not binding on the on, on, on future cases, this becomes problematic in the sense, say, for example, with sport resolutions or court of arbitration for sport, in which the arbitrators would have some responsibility to have a look at other cases, but they're not necessarily bound by it. Now, to give this some flavour, I guess, what we find in sports law is that people will use, and apparently this is common in commercial arbitration as well, but they will say the CAS has decided this, the CAS has decided this, the core arbitration for sport has decided this, where in reality it's a panel of arbitrators appointed by the administration of CAS rather than the body itself. But globally, you can uh, you see people giving presentations, writing articles, etc., implying that the body itself has this overarching responsibility. What is your view on that? And do you think? And I think it was James Segan from from uh, Blackstone Chambers who proposed for anyway an article at least. Um, I'm sure there's many many others that maybe perhaps in in sports arbitration there should be some sort of true supreme court with sitting judges. Well, do you have any views on that? So the first point of that question, sorry, being um, jurisprudence in arbitration. Yeah. How do you resolve that issue? And second point, should there be a Supreme Court? I mean, I think it's I think it's good that uh, that CAS is publishing the decisions, and there's been a, a lot of debate. I'm, in fact, I've spoken on this myself about whether in commercial arbitration um, decisions uh, in certain sorts of cases, you know, when they're in con interpreting a uh, a standard form of contract and that's that sort of thing um, whether they should be published and uh, I I think that um, I'm, I'm sort of going back to what I was saying before in a way uh, I, I, obviously if the parties agree to it that's fine if they don't agree to it then uh, I think that there's a lot to be said for um, but it would have to be done under the sort of auspices of some body I think having some sort of collected uh, decisions, maybe with redactions and, and, and maybe only parts of the decision, although that's problematic because you know maybe you need to see the whole thing to see it in context. So it's quite a complicated question. Absolutely. It's just, it's just the, the I'm obsessed with rule of law. That's my, my real obsession. And I said it was Lord Warford in the report, I think, that stuck with me forever, which was uh, to have rule of law, everyone should be able to understand the rules and regulations that govern their behavior. Yeah. And therefore, 
coming into an arbitration, particularly when parties were invested, spending money, getting counsel, etc. Um, the degree of certainty, so and uh, lawyers, for example, the, the solicitors will, uh, particularly in this country, they will say well, we've got 50% chance, 80% chance, particularly if they're getting litigation funding for doing this. They seem to me that, that it becomes a problem for, uh, particularly when we're looking, say, for example, of athletes, to understand really if they were going to go to an appeal, which is often where the arbitration is, is an appeal, not always, but it's not, you know, but often it's this the appeal process. Do, uh, do they have an honest assessment of what their likelihood of success is and also are we getting a position where particularly our arbitrators are appointed say for example the sports res i believe they appoint the arbitrators in uh cas they it would be the parties to choose one arbitrator each side and then uh, uh, then they choose the chair or the or the um <clears throat> the administration will choose the chair in those type of situations how do we deal with this given the public interest as you were saying this weight of cases that are coming out the analysis that's required the inconsistency with the with the cases. How do we address that? Well, I don't know. You can really address it. I, I think that <laughs> I think it's I think um, I think it's very it's helpful to have access to decisions of um, arbitrators in other cases, and not because they they're binding, as you say, but because if you uh, you know if you get a good panel, I mean, we all know there are good panels and there are less good panels, but if you get a good panel. Um, then uh, even if it's not binding on you, uh, you can see the reasoning that's been followed and uh, you may well find it persuasive. You may say, well, I, I think that's, I agree with that. Uh, so I, th I can't see any downside to having access to that. I can only see positives. The positive being you know, having access to some reasoning on the same point. Um, and you know that it may persuade you, but it's not binding. But do you think there's there's, there's room for a course? So say, and, I, and maybe you can, again, another. Uh, sorry, you have to bear with me. I'm not as uh, as clear minded as you. I, I jump around a lot. So it's all right. I asked this question to Michael Beloff, uh, who who sat as an arbitrator, who sits as an arbitrator, privy council judge. I said to him, "How do you deal with a situation where you've got to make a, a decision, as you were saying, on on the on the regulations of the Saracen case, where you're not actually that happy with uh, the regulations?" And he said, well, really, that's not my job. I'm a, I'm a judge. I'm an arbitrator. But in an arbitration setting, unlike in, the, in our courts where, um, you know, you can f make other findings, uh, you're limited in the scope. Well, uh, where do we, given that the, the weight that is placed on, say, court of arbitration for sport decisions, should there not be some sort of oversight body if it is a pool of uh, former judges globally who then review the the decisions and say right this is actually the the approach that should be taken going forward well that's a very interesting thought i mean that that's that that that's um uh, a fairly revolutionary idea i mean i'm i'm not saying i'm against it but then you would have to have i, I i'm thinking aloud here you you would have to make sure uh, are you are you sorry are you contemplating having decisions from as it were, on high, which would be binding on arbitrators? Uh, in Well, first instance where I think yes, and then secondly, I'd tend to go revise my decision. You know, yeah. So instinctively, I'd say that would be great that people would have some certainty there. Yes. But even if it was a question of it wasn't necessarily binding, but it was... Um, persuasive. Persuasive, yeah. yes. Um, I, I mean, I think this would need a... I, I mean, in principle, it, sound, you know, it sounds a good idea, 
but it, it would need a lot of careful thought. First of all, who who were, who is going to be who are going to be these great wise men and women who are I'm going nominating to be. you for one of them? <laughs> <laughs> but 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 who appoints them? Mm. And how are they how are they appointed? How are they selected? And is this to be international or is this just to be national? I was thinking international. Well, then you get into well. It can be done because we know that you know Strasbourg, a uh, court in Strasbourg, the court in Luxembourg. It can be done, um, and you know some of the some of the people appointed from other jurisdictions are perhaps we would say are perhaps not quite as high quality as the people we think. We, then we would say that, wouldn't we? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, this, so is, this is a ter- terrible issue of I, bias that we've got on our part. But there is a difference fundamentally, and this is one of my points, though. How lawyers are educated, how lawyers are trained, differs great, greatly. The People's understanding of principles of rule of law differ greatly, in my experience. People's understanding of independence and, and ethics differs yeah, greatly. And, yes. that, and that causes a, yeah. a problem, particularly. Yeah. And at the moment, we've, we've settled with... All things considered, the Court of Arbitration for Sport is the best we've got at the moment. Yeah. And they do a lot of great stuff. So it's not to be hypercritical of them because yeah. I'm not in that regard. And I think it's a necessary uh, function that they perform. However, I'm always uh, looking to say, how mm. can we improve things? And so yeah. in that context to say, if it is even just cultural understanding or awareness. Yeah. Well, you've raised uh, at the end of this most enjoyable interview. You've raised some very, very big questions, which I haven't thought about. Um, I, I can see the attractions of having some kind of a, a supranational body, um, or even in this, even a national body in this country. But as I said, it, it raises big questions about who who is going to be on this, how they're to be appointed, um, and uh, but the thing that I'm really, I I, I think that what could be done which would be much less difficult to do is to have much more openness than we currently have which is not a big step to take um, and it seems from what you say as if the tide is moving in that direction anyway and I would thoroughly applaud that and, and encourage the, the, that so that we don't have a thing like we had in the Saracens case and I, it sounds as if I'm being very critical of PRL and I uh, maybe I am, but I, I just think it's wrong. Yeah, thank you. Um, <clears throat> I've got, t- I think, two more questions. One very quick one. Do you think that um, <clears throat> law and sport, uh, f- particularly as in administrative roles, lack in diversity? I think everyone would widely agree the bar have got yeah. issues with diversity, mm. solicitors have got issues, the law society have got issues mm. with diversity. Mm. Everyone's mm. trying to, to address it, but, mm. but fundamentally you still see, and I'm going to be one of them soon, a bunch of old white men in suits are the yeah. vast majority of people who influence what's go- going on. With that being the case, um, maybe it doesn't inform, but in order to, to essentially pave the way for more opportunities, do you think... I think that you describe this as a leading question. Um, how do we ensure that there is greater diversity and more opportunities for people? Yes, I mean, I'm. But just to, to answer your first question, I, I'm not very keen on on having the sort of rigid rigidity of saying, you know, you can only be an arbitrator for for five years or seven years or whatever it is, whatever it is. Um, and I think you, I, I think. You, to, to answer your second question, I, I think one one really needs to try to encourage 
the bodies that appoint arbitrators, sports resolution and CAS and whoever else. Yeah, CCDRC in Canada and AAA in America, wherever they are. They need to be educated into um, really realizing the importance of appointing I say this against myself because I'm white, I'm a man, and I'm old. So, I mean, I fall flat on my face on on all three counts. Um, But trying to be objective about it, um, I think they they need to be persuaded of the utility, the benefit of having more women, more ethnic minority people, um, and younger people. Um, I say that against my own interests. but it's a matter of, of training and educating and persuading them of, of the, the benefits and the importance of this. Um, in the judiciary now, it's, uh, everybody doesn't is it, totally unquestioned that we, we need to have more um, diversity in the judiciary. And it is improving. It has improved in the last few years. Um, that's not through doing having quotas, it, because I don't, I'm not a quota person. I don't believe in quotas but it, it is a and it is partly a question of of getting people to to apply as well to express an interest i mean you, you don't apply so i don't think you apply to become a, a member of sports resolution council or do you i don't know I, I i don't know quite how i got onto it but onto their panel but i don't think you apply but uh but women on the whole are they don't push themselves forward as much on the whole, I must admit we've had an issue with this just recently. The where that we asked people to put this forward from our community who would love to participate in our football law conference yeah. had instantly within a few days ten emails from men saying I'd love to yeah. I'd love to speak. Yeah. And I know on that list there's some very high caliber women on that list. I was hoping would would respond and I'll, I'll address that. And I think we have to be a bit more. I think I, was, you, I think you have to be more direct. I think you've got to actually approach them. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, uh, but I think also in the in the from from some work that we've been doing and everything to build your point that if you want to be inclusive you have to expressly say you want to be inclusive yes, and that yes. you intend to do it and you are going to do it and you've proof, got to yeah. encourage I mean I, I did a lot of this particularly when I was master of the roles and um, you have to take the time to go and speak to them target people who you think are good and say look you know have you thought of doing this and you know you you really have the qualities I think about it and, and, and so on. Yeah, because I think a lot of people just, like, I mean, I, I speak to some very, even to the point where it's interesting the psychology of it, where I deal with very high quality barristers and solicitors who literally don't think they can do anything else other than the particular practice area that they're doing at that moment in time, not realizing they're, they've actually got their skill set is very sought after, say, for example, in the sports context, and they talk themselves out of it. And maybe it's a it's as much a, an issue for, for the legal sector and the legal minds. Um, Finally, um, I just want to say, I mean, it's been a real joy. I mean, honestly, uh, I really do appreciate um, how much time you've taken uh, for this. Um, I hope it doesn't, you probably don't get embarrassed nowadays, uh, I would imagine, given given how the kind things that people say about you. But from uh, having briefly looked at your career, listened to you talk today, it seems that you've been earmarked at various levels, at various points, people have said, there's something about this individual who's got certain characteristics. I don't know I'm going to make you feel uncomfortable, sorry. But but it seemed to me that, that that you've got certain characteristics, whether it's to be a head of a chambers, whether it's to be the master of the roles, whether it's to be a, um, a Supreme Court judge, whether it, whatever it is you're doing, an arbitrator or a point on these key cases. 
why do you think that is and do you th- what do you think it's do you think it's uh innate within you or do you think it's something that you've is these characteristics that you've learned and adapt i'm just i'm super fascinated in because you've obviously you know you've obviously got this highly sought after skill set or maybe personality type or both what is it what what well i think i'm i I think one's very bad about sort of um putting the mirror up in front of one and 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 answering a question like that i mean i i think i do talk a bit about this in the book actually um i i was i was very shy when i was young and there's still a bit of me i mean this this probably you probably don't believe this but there's still a bit of me which is a bit shy um but from years and years of doing things and and seeing that I can do them, of course, you gain confidence. Absolutely, and confidence is really what it's all about. Um, and I, I didn't re- ever really see myself as a leader until um, I, uh, until I started being asked to be a leader. And I don't quite know why people actually asked me to be a leader, but I think maybe that there's something sort of I, I I don't shout, I don't make a lot of noise, but I'm quite um, I'm quite firm, I think, and um, I, it, I, it's, a, it's a difficult question to answer. Uh, maybe it's your humility, by the sound. Well, I, I think I maybe. am. I mean, people yeah. keep saying how modest I am, and it, it is it is genuine. I mean, I really, uh, I, I'm, I'm always struck by how um, a lot a lot of the people who who are, seem to be most full of themselves are actually not very good. And the people who who are really good, are right, they don't need to blow their own trumpets. Maybe that's it. I mean, Tom Bingham was my great hero. Um, who, I mean, he he would never have blown his own trumpet. He didn't need to. Um, and as to whether it's innate or learnt, um, I mean, obviously, to an to a, an extent, it must be innate. It's, it's your your character, and you've got to have a certain amount of brain power to do it as well but I do think that um, certainly in my own case I have gained in confidence enormously from just doing it and seeing seeing that I've been able to do it in various different roles uh, and and succeed in doing it and, and that gives you a lot of confidence I know it's not really relevant to sports law, but I know a lot of people listen to, to law in sport and take inspiration from it from people like yourselves can you, uh, t- very quickly, if you can, this is, I promise this is the last question. I know you're going to get tired of me saying this is the last question. Can you talk about that, that sort of in- dealing with that insecurity? Because again, people look at you and I now do these podcasts and I now speak at events. I, it took me years to build up the confidence to even ask a question at an event because I was so insecure about how I sounded, my yes. intelligence, etc. Yes. And then again, like you, I just went, yes. well, I've got to do it. Otherwise, I'm yeah. never going to do what I want to do yeah. if I don't get over it. Yeah. How did you, what was the, you know, from given the, where you, you've achieved the top of the profession, essentially, when you started out dealing with that, that must have been really challenging dealing with that if you've, if you've generally had like lack of confidence. But so I what did you tell, what did you? I, I never thought of it like that because I, I just took one step at a time. I, 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 I never... I never thought, you know, uh, 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 step one, well, I'd like to get to step four and how am I going to get to step four? I never, I just never, never did that. So I never thought about um, applying for silk uh, until 
uh, I was encouraged to apply for silk quite young, actually. I mean, after what my first application, which I didn't really want to make, but my clerk insisted, I, and that was after 13 years, I didn't get it. I got it when I was after 14 years, which is quite young. Yeah, I see. Um, and then I never thought, I never, never crossed my mind that I might be a judge one day uh, until not long. Well, I, I, I was made a recorder and I enjoyed that. But it, I, even then, I never thought of becoming a full time judge. Do you think it's that singularity of focus that this helped? Because if you're looking at each point, that you're not getting distracted by other things, and so I don't think so. I just, I just maybe it is. I, I think I've I've always just tried to do the best I could at each. Well, even now, I mean, you know, this may seem odd, but um, every case I have, even now, um, I regard as a, as a challenge to try and do a, a good, as good a job as I can. So I take a lot of trouble over things and. Uh, that may seem strange that I, I, I still put as much effort really into writing a, a, a decision now as I did 25 years ago. And I think uh, one of the good things in a way is that, you know, you are you are being judged all the time. Everything you do, you're being judged. And I, uh, my, my reputation matters a lot to me. I don't, I think if I made a, if I made a, mistake now I it wouldn't I don't it wouldn't take away everything that I've done in the past but I think the problem for me now is which I don't want to happen uh is they might say well he was good in his time but really it's time he packed up now my wife who's incredibly critical of me I mean the nicest possible way as you if you've read the book you, you will I'm halfway you have, through well you'll see I mean I, I I she I, I say a lot about her and um, you know, if 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 she thought that I was beginning to lose it, she would tell me. Uh, I hope I would know as well. But it, but she would tell me, and then I would stop. I wouldn't hate to get to a point where people said, "Well, he was good in his time, but he should have stopped." Um, so that's another spur for me to continue to do a good job. But I just can't do other than doing the, the best job I can do. But I think that's a very tangible objective for most people that they can get hold of, that they can say, you know what, if I do a good job, and I say this to with our mentees or to people who get internships, and they yeah. go to me, maybe what do I do if it's not the right one for me? And I said, well, do the best job you can yes. because then at least someone will give you a good reference, even if it's not the thing you like. Yes. And then because we can't yes. you. So yes. uh, I think that's wonderful advice. Yes. And then finally, if you're looking and... and I said two questions. Finally, though, <laughs> does, does, give me um, if you were to say someone objectively was something. If you're looking to talent spot, or if you're looking at uh, an individual, what you're looking at in terms of what are the things that you value in a lawyer, in a good in a good lawyer oh, or gosh. counsel? Are they like, yeah, just a couple of points? If it's character, if it's legal skill, well, it's everything, isn't it? Um, integrity is hugely important. That's sort of character. Hard, hard work, ability to, um, and a willingness to work hard. Uh, clarity, clarity of thought and clarity of expression. Um, well, they, as this goes on, probably it, uh, I'm, I'm very there's a lot more, but yeah. th th that'll do. Thank you so much. I mean, really is a joy. Um, as you can probably tell, I would like to keep you here for another hour, <laughs> but we've overrun. Well, uh, I wish you all the best. Well, and, thank you. And. Um, 
yeah, I just can't say how much I've enjoyed it. This really has been one of the highlights for me. And like I said, I haven't finished your book yet, but I'm certainly going to. Um, and funny enough, I've, I've got Lord Bingham's book. I'm still halfway through. It's just the rule of law yes, book, but I'll finish that as well. As well. Um, yeah, it's really good. Yeah. Um, so again, thank you sincerely. Well, it's my pleasure. I enjoyed it. Well, sadly, that's all we have time for for this show. But I think you'll agree with me that that was an exceptional um, interview. Well, I would say that, of course, but I think you agree that, that the um, analysis and commentary and stream of consciousness from Lord Dyson was fantastic, incredibly beneficial and touching on a number of very important issues within sports law. So thank you for tuning in. And remember, for all your latest legal issues and developments from the world of sport, go to lawandsport.com. And remember, for all the latest legal issues and remember, for analysis and commentary on the latest legal issues and developments from the world of sport, go to lawinsport.com. Follow us on all the social media channels. You can become a Law and Sport member and get access to our 2,000 plus peer-reviewed articles, videos of our panel sessions from our conferences. Um, we've got a series of webinars launching in the new year. You know, just be supportive and come and join in. And if you like what we do, please do tell people about it. So other than that, wherever you are in the world, whatever time of day it is, hope you have a fantastic day. Thanks for your support. And thank you for tuning in.